When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. Okay, our final day here in the PFF offices in Cincinnati. Matthew Collar, Eric Eager for Pro Football Focus, co-hosting the show today as he has the last three days. And it has been a awesome experience to be around here, to learn some things about football, to get to meet all the people at Pro Football Focus, and to discuss where things are going in the National Football League. So that will be part of our conversation today, Eric, of just what we foresee, what is in the numbers and the data. It's like that... Uh, that gif on Twitter with the woman who's looking at all the numbers are sort of floating in front of her face. Um, if you're not on like the internet, some of these things just go over your head, but you can sort of. Picture I prefer it. Alan from The Hangover when he's playing blackjack, and that that's like my numbers gif. The, the numbers, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, all right. Well, think of just a person with lots of numbers in their brain. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Where football is going in 2019, and what might surprise us. Uh, all of a sudden, two years ago, the RPO became the thing that we all talked about. And then last year, yeah, there were RPOs, but it's not like the RPO entirely overtook the National Football League. Um, but there are trends that we're seeing, and I'm really interested to uh, find out your thoughts, Eric, on, on some of those. But um, I ran across a stat just before the show when I was poking around for something else we're going to talk about later of which Vikings team should have made it over the last couple of decades that didn't. Like, what was the strongest team, say, since, like, 1980 for the Minnesota Vikings? And I'm poking through these numbers, I'm looking around, and I'm looking at point differentials for the entire season. And what I noticed in the Mike Zimmer era is that Zimmer's first season, the Vikings had a minus 18 point differential, which is sometimes a 7-9 and nine team, sometimes a 9-7 and seven team, based on how lucky you get, how well your team kicks, and so forth, maybe what your schedule was like, that sort of thing. And every other year in the Mike Zimmer era, Eric, has been a positive point differential, plus 63 in 2015, plus 20 in 2016, plus 130 in 2017. <laughs> of course, that's the uh, championship, NFC Championship year. And even last year, a disappointing season, but still plus 19 in the point differential. And when you look at the other coaches and throughout the eras of Vikings football, you're hard-pressed to find too many coaches in the league that have such consistency of being a better team than not. So... 
I, I wanted to ask you about how you figure out if a coach is good or not, because I keep coming back to Mike Zimmer having shortcomings, but his results in Minnesota would suggest he's been, especially with the quarterback issues, one of the best coaches in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things we do here is we use, you know, we have grades for players, so we sort of know how good the players that uh, Mike Zimmer is working with are. And so we can go back and say, you know, how well would we expect this team to do given their their um you know luck and skill mostly skill sort of on their defensive side and then how do they perform and and one of the things we've noticed over the past you know 4 or 5 years is that Mike Zimmer repeatedly gets more out of his team than the grades would suggest and so you know and that's something where like last season I believe he was the second most efficient defensive coordinator behind Vic Fangio uh he was first I believe 2 years ago like the Vikings defense is a bunch of really talented players, but Zimmer oftentimes gets more than the sum of the parts, and that's I think just speaks to how good he is. I you know I was looking through this, and you know I have a lot of fondness for Dennis Green, uh, you know one of the the first black coaches in the NFL, very successful for the Vikings, but he made the playoffs and had some winning teams with negative point differential in 1993. They were nine and seven, made the playoffs negative 13, 96 and 97 combined minus 22, both made the playoffs, uh, and, and so you know that's sort of interesting whereas uh you know and and even the year i believe they went 11 and 5 in 2000 made the nfc title game their point differential that year was 26 <laughs> so not terribly high and green sort of you know that that sort of shows a lot of luck in some circumstances zimmer is not this way right they were plus 19 last year even in being 8 7 and 1 uh plus 20 the year they went 8 and 8 in 2016 so they, they've been a lot you know frankly unlucky if you just look at the point differential well especially with uh kicking issues have yeah. been pretty consistent across the board uh, that have not helped that point differential but when i'm analyzing a coach uh, part of it has to be the context of what that coach is supposed to do for that team. So, for example, with Mike Zimmer, what he's supposed to do is lead an elite defense, which he consistently has. For Sean McVay, he's supposed to lead an elite offense and let Wade Phillips do the rest. And with Sean McVay, when he has success, it always seems like there's the credit for being the whole head coach. But with Zimmer... It's almost become the narrative that, oh, he only, he only knows defense. He doesn't know anything about offense, and so he's not that great of a head coach. That's where I, I always think, well, all these guys had to be coordinators first. If you're not an offensive or defensive coordinator, then what are, are they making a special teams guy the head coach? More likely than not, they would uh, not do that, right? So it's usually with any of these head coaches, it's your one side of the ball and the team is often strong there, or you get fired. And then the, the other side is who you pick as your coordinator. So Kansas City last year is a bus fire on defense, probably did not have anywhere near good enough of a defensive coordinator, which I guess is somewhat on the head coach, but um, mostly on who was supposed to do that job. And with Zimmer, I think it is harder, though, when you have offensive coordinators, if they, if they are successful, they probably move along. Uh, with Pat Shermer is a good example that if you bring back Pat Shermer for last year, the Vikings probably make the playoffs. I mean, because the uh, margin is just so thin. But you don't get to have Pat Shermer because you're a defensive coach and your offensive coach moves on. So I don't, I don't know how you view that, but I don't think that there are many coaches who just dominate each side of the ball and and can have everything be their specialty. Well, and I and I think the coaches that do like that are 
they detach themselves too much in some sense. So, like, for example, Mike Tomlin, one of the, I think, one of his great decisions he made when he joined Pittsburgh was that he maintained the 3-4 sort of Blitzburg defense uh, when he was traditionally a Tampa 2 guy uh, under Dungy and, and, and in his first year in Minnesota as a defensive coordinator. Um, he doesn't seem to be involved in much of anything other than the game decisions and the sort of... Uh, you know, uh, I would say motivation and that kind of thing. Dennis Green was very much that way with Minnesota, whereas, it, yeah, we've seen, you know, sort of a, a trend towards coaches who specialize in one side of the ball. And as you said, the guy, I mean, offense drives the majority of football now. And so when you, um, when you are a brilliant offensive mind, Kyle Shanahan with Atlanta, uh, you know, Sean McVay with Washington, you're going to get scooped up pretty, pretty well. And we've seen that sort of elicit some maybe false positives. You know, Zach Taylor coming to, you know, here in Cincinnati, uh, Matt LaFleur, uh, in Green Bay, you know, who knows if those guys will work out, but that's really what the teams are looking for. And so that's kind of, you know, a risky thing when you're a team and you are a defense first because if you do stumble upon a really good offensive coordinator like Pat Shermer, he's probably gone the moment that other people realize he's good. Right. Uh, but at the same time, if you do strike gold with the defensive mind, you can have a consistently good defense, which uh, across the board from year to year is very difficult to have. And uh, Pat, uh, Pete Carroll is an example in Seattle. He was a defensive mind, right? And they, they were number one in the league for, I think, four years straight. And I don't know if John Harbaugh identified as a um, defensive coach beforehand, but it seems like Baltimore under John Harbaugh has been consistently great on defense. It sort of carried on that tradition from what they created in the early 2000s. And even with Marvin Lewis for a very long time here in uh, Cincinnati, you could count on his defenses at least being good. And then adding Mike Zimmer to the mix was uh, a major part of that. But go back through Mike Zimmer's career, and the last time he had a below-average defense in terms of scoring was in 2007 with Atlanta, the year that Bobby Petrino quit on the team and Michael Vick was arrested. I mean, that's that's the yeah. last time you're going to find where Zimmer is below average. And I think that whether it's offense or defense, if you can make that type of consistent impact that is tangible, and you could say, well, Cincinnati had good players and the Vikings had good players, but in both cases, they raised those players. They drafted them. And they made them better. Somebody like Anthony Harris is a great example. He's an undrafted player. Andrew Sandejo is the same way. Undrafted player and you make the guy better and better year after year because Anderson Dale is a good example of someone who saw his play rise and rise and rise and get better until it sort of peaked in 2017, which probably had a lot to do with age, and then he was injured at the end of the season when he had that concussion uh, in the playoff game. But Anthony Harris is a great example of somebody who comes in as an undrafted rookie special teamer. He ends up becoming a starter. Tom Johnson, they find off the scrap heap in the CFL. He becomes a starter and is very good. And I know that they like to draft on the defensive side and in the secondary, but it is remarkable, I think, the number of players who we see take these big step forwards. Mackenzie Alexander last year, Xavier Rhodes a couple of years ago, and even Trey Waynes has become a very solid player. So it's not only just about um, having those good players, but making the most and getting the most out of those great players. So you could criticize the asset management sometimes for who the Vikings pay, but I don't think that you could criticize what they've been able to build on the defensive side from a schematic, from a play calling, and from a personnel standpoint. That, to me, justifies alone knowing that you're going to win seven or eight games just based on having a great defense, having Mike Zimmer as, as your head coach. Yeah, and I think that that's never going to be, we talked about this yesterday on the show, I don't think that's ever going to be a question 
history with Minnesota. I think their floor is always that seven wins. The difficulty is if you're a Vikings fan, you get a taste of that 13 wins in 2017, and you start thinking, okay, Super Bowl homeboy, as Randy Moss would say. Right. And 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 the issue is, is there's a ceiling to that side, right? People see, okay, you know, aside from Belichick, who have been the teams that have been on the doorstep of the Super Bowl the last few years? It's Atlanta with Kyle Shanahan. It's the Eagles with Doug Peterson. Uh, last season, it's the Rams with Sean McVay. Um, and you know, so the idea is like, well, your ceiling is just lower when you have a guy like Zimmer because the offense is always sort of going to be in this flux. Your floor is a lot higher, but your ceiling's a lot lower. And that's, you know, the question being, do you ever, you know, Zimmer's done a terrific job, but, you know, there might be a point where it just needs to be sort of like the the idea of risk management needs to be addressed in that, okay, we're we're going to risk a few 3-13 and 13 seasons, but in, in, a, in you know, exchange for that, we're going to up our probability of having a 13-3 and three in a Super Bowl season. That, you know, that's kind of my, my criticism of going defense first with the coach. So I was thinking about this um, recently, about the defense first teams and actually making the Super Bowl, not just being competitive, getting the playoffs and so forth, but really getting all the way there. And the examples that people, during all of my time in any sort of sports talk radio or journalism, have always gone back to is, of course, Trent Dilfer and, hey, Rex Grossman made a Super Bowl and so forth. And then Peyton Manning in 2015, because Manning was at the end of his career and he was clearly shot and a great defense from the Denver Broncos gets you there. But I think when you start to go through it with a more fine-tooth comb and when you look at where offense has gone in the last couple of years, that it's taken a very big jump forward. And I think that makes it a lot harder to be that team. And I would always argue on that Denver Broncos side that Peyton Manning in the playoffs did a good job of getting them ahead in games, and then they defensed the hell out of everything to win those games and got lucky. I mean, the Patriots had a bunch of offensive linemen out. I think they're playing a tight end on the offensive line by the end of the game against Denver. They miss an extra point when they never missed an extra point. They had a chance to win the game, I think, on a two-point conversion, and they don't convert it. And all those things got them there. And then Carolina gets to the Super Bowl, fumbles the football with their fullback, and uh, their offensive line can't hold up, and the turf is messed up. It's just like everything aligned perfectly. Which does happen, but I don't think that's a very good case to say, oh, I think they could do it. I think even when you start to reference, hey, Eli Manning won with a 9-7 and team and they played really great defense in the playoffs, you're almost going back too far. I, I think you really have to compare just the last couple of seasons where you end up with the Patriots and the Falcons, two of the best offenses, Patriots and Eagles, Patriots and Rams. I mean, I, I think it's becoming much harder for those outlier Rex Grossman, Trent Delfer teams that make it with a bad quarterback or mediocre quarterback play to to do that like they did in even the recent past. Yeah, I mean, I just to your point, in 2006, the Rex Grossman year, there was one quarterback with over 30 touchdowns. That was Peyton Manning, the quarterback that won the Super Bowl that year. Uh, there was only five quarterbacks with over 4,000 yards. Um, if you look at last season, there were nine quarterbacks, including Kirk Cousins, who had over 30 touchdown passes. There were... 
uh, twelve quarterbacks, not, and you know, and the one of the best ones, Drew Brees, was under four thousand. But there were twelve quarterbacks with over four thousand yards. We're talking about, in some sense, a different game, right? And so, if you view it that way and say, okay, there's been one exception in this recent time where a team, you know, won a Super Bowl while being defense first and kind of a crappy offense. That to me sort of like puts that in perspective. If we have to go all the way back to 2000 to say, oh, you know, I think like the quarterback that was third in touchdowns in 2000 was Jeff Garcia, <laughs> right? So then, like, I believe fourth was Elvis Gerbach. So if you want to tell me, okay, when the fourth best quarterback in the NFL is Elvis Gerbach, you can win with defense. Okay, fine. Yeah, now but it's now, Aaron Rodgers. Now it's probably yeah. the fourth best quarterback in the league. Exactly right. So now, now you're talking about some, you know, some really substantial offenses, and you have to compete with those. And offense just controls so much. And when the offense controls a lot and is good, you are sort of helpless as a defense, as we've seen at times with Minnesota against some of the better offenses, namely in the NFC title game against the Eagles, Week Four last season against the Rams. It's just the way that it sort of goes. What comes to mind for me is a study that was done not that long ago about true results in sports. So what league, what sport has the most true results? You play better than the other team, you win. You have more talent, you win, so forth. And I think anyone could figure out which one would be number one. It's basketball. Throughout Mm -hmm. the entire history of basketball, we've seen this with the Minnesota Lynx when they had Maya Moore and Lindsey Whalen and Sylvia Fowles and Simone Augustus. Those are four of the best players to ever play. Guess what? They won a bunch of championships. And then Golden State. The Los Angeles Lakers before that, the Celtics before that, or well, uh, sorry, the Bulls before that, the Celtics. Mm-hmm. Like, it's true results. The best team wins a bunch all the time. And with football, that's not always the case that you get to the Super Bowl and it's the two best teams. But I think that the more offense you have, the more true results you have. So if you have teams able to put up 50 points, the more likely it is that the best team is going to get there. It's not going to be determined by fumble luck. It's not going to be determined by a couple of field goals. It's going to be determined by who the actual most talented offensive team is. And that's what we've seen the last three years. Uh, I think each one of these teams individually from the last three seasons have been, in terms of expected points on their offense and their passing game, in the top five. And if you're the Vikings and you look at this, you say, well, we've got a great chance to be very, very good. But how can we get ourselves, in terms of our passing game, into that range? And now I think a lot of people immediately would say it's just not possible with Kirk Cousins. I mean, he did it once in 2016 where his expected points was extremely high and his numbers were extremely good. Mm -hmm. So it's not completely impossible. The question is just how high would you have to rank in offense now to win, assuming, just writing down in pen, that the Vikings are fifth in defense? Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing, the issue is, you talk about the 2016 uh, Washington team. That team was one game away from making the playoffs, and they absolutely, you know, bleep the bed in in at home against the they Giants, 19-10, and it's like, oh shoot, okay, fine. Okay, we go back to the drawing board. Well, Kirk is not necessarily good enough to go back to the drawing board with every year. The guy that I'd like to show as an example of this is Matt Ryan, right? So 2015, Matt Ryan struggles a little bit. Falcons' defense isn't very good. They go 8-8. Eight and eight. 2016, everything comes together. They basically have a 25-point lead in the Super Bowl, and... You know, some things happen and they don't win it, right? 2017, he doesn't quite play as well. They drop more third down. They led the league and drop passes on third down, et cetera, et cetera. The Falcons go 10 and 6, make the playoffs, win a game, and then lose like a noisy game against Philly, uh, in Philly. Last season, their whole defense gets hurt. They go 7 and 9, right? 
but they're always going to be striking distance away, right? And to me, if you're always going to be striking distance away, you need to have a quarterback who's consistently good like Matt Ryan, right? And that in that realm, like I just don't think I think Kirk's a step below that. So you're going to get some seasons where they're striking distance away. And they have to cash in like the Eagles, right? In 2017, when you have when you have Nick Foles, you have to be a little lucky to win the Super Bowl. You have to cash in like Denver did in 2015, because when you get that close and you don't have elite quarterback play, there's absolutely no guarantee in the world that you're going to get back. And the the bet the Vikings made was we're going to get that close with a top five defense and an average to slightly above average quarterback. And I think that was just a miscalculation on their part. So. Um, yeah, I think they can certainly win a Super Bowl. They're going to need a lot of luck, and I don't think that they're going to be consistently in the conversation to win one, even despite the fact they have a top-five defense because the quarterback is sort of in that second tier of players at the position. So basically you're saying that in 2017 you missed the, the shot, that when we talk about the Super Bowl window being open, there's a case to be made that it isn't. I, I would say, yeah, I would say that the, the, it was more... The door flung open because of the wind, and you didn't run through, and it's gonna and, and it was bound to slam shut. So the, when I, when I look back at Vikings history of the past, trying to draw comparisons of, of what this would remind you of, like what era of Minnesota Vikings football, and I guess it sort of gets me into an early '90s type of era where. They're very good, but don't have the quarterback yet until, of course, uh, Randall Cunningham comes along, the quarterback who everyone projected at that time to uh, save the Vikings in the late 90s, but really until Randy Moss comes along and changes the entire NFL. But in the early 90s, I imagine there was a very similar feeling because the Vikings were never out of it. You went into every single season feeling like, hey, we're a great NFL team. We're going to be competitive. We're on national TV uh, we can beat some of the best teams in the league. I mean, the records of these teams in the early 90s for the Vikings, I mean, starting with 91, you got 8-8, eight 11-5, eight, 9-7, and 10-6, and 8-8, a couple of 9-7s and sevens before Randy Moss shows up. And uh, there's a little bit of now, how much patience would there be for a 9-7 and seven season? It's always been the toughest question to me to ask. We know what's going to happen if they go 6-10. and 10. We know that Mike Zimmer's going to get a lifetime contract if they go 13 and 3 again. But what happens if they're just okay again? What if it's a first round out? This has been a really tough yeah, question. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. I guess I, I would have to have Mark and Ziggy Wilf here to ask them. But that one is the really tough one because I, I feel like, Eric, that if that ends up being the case, then I don't think that they're going to be satisfied. And that doesn't mean change the coach, because we talked about Zimmer as a very good NFL coach. But there has to be some change of direction then. Yeah, I mean, we saw it. Like, to me, I think the biggest example of this was, you know, the 88 team under Jerry Burns. Went 11-5, and swept the Bears, but got, you know, missed out on the division title because they lost to, like, a 4-12 and Green Bay team twice. They win, they win the first round of the Rams. They lose to San Francisco. Pretty convincing fashion. Wade Wilson had like a Case Keenum-like year where he made the, play, you know, he made the Pro Bowl. The defense was the top in the league in terms of yards allowed. I think they, they got something like, uh, was it 40, 30 set sacks the following year? They had like 71 sacks. Chris Dolman, Keith Millard, Carl Lee, all those players. They're sort of great. 
but they, there was always this narrative that they were missing the run game, right? So that <laughs> you know, Darren Nelson was the leading rusher that year. With got to have the run game. Three hundred eighty-eight, three hundred eighty yards is what Darren Nelson got as their leading rusher that year. And so, what do they do? They go into two, in nineteen eighty-nine. They started a little slow, and then they mortgage the future for Herschel Walker, right? Every every time a team in that in that realm gets desperate, and I'm not saying the Kirk Cousins signing was desperate. It was, but it's but it was, yeah, yeah it was because otherwise you wouldn't do it. I mean, yeah. if you weren't desperate to take advantage of where you just were the year before, thirteen and three NFC Championship game, and feel like you need a quarterback who can get you over the top, and you're desperate to win in this window of having a great defense and two elite wide receivers, you do not spend that money. You look for other options. You look for bargain quarterbacks that can get you to the next quarterback who you're going to trade up in the draft and take, right? You you don't go all in with that type of contract for someone that the Vikings said, and maybe this is their big mistake was having this quote, but that they watched every pass of Kirk Cousins' career, which I think is a little bit dubious since he was I mean, going back to 2012, like, what good does that do you? If you were doing that, you were wasting your time. But when you say, oh, we've watched every single pass, and we as an entire organization, from the offensive coordinator that we're going to fire in Week 16, to the owner, to the general manager, to the final scout, all the way down the line, to the analytics person, everybody's on board with Kirk J. Cousins. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is they didn't get anything that different. I mean, Kirk's composition and his grade was a little different than normal, but they really got what Kirk Cousins was. Exactly. And yeah. The, and the similarity, they got Kirk Cousins. The similarity is, is like they got Herschel Walker when you know Walker led the, I believe he led the second in the NFC in rushing in 1988 for Dallas. He had 1,514 yards. It took him 361 carries, 4.2 a carry. Walker, in 1989, they didn't give him as many carries, but he averaged 4 yards a carry. 1990, he averaged exactly 4.2 yards a carry again. 1991, 4.2 yards per carry. They got exactly what was in Herschel Walker, but they just... They miscalculated what getting that player meant, right? And and the yeah. same thing was with with Kirk Cousins. They just miscalculated what getting a good but not great quarterback means on a team like that. And and, and understandably so. The, you know the eighty nine Vikings went ten and six, won the division, but bowed out in the playoffs to San Francisco again because San Francisco beat them up and down the field with a better quarterback. 1990-1991, I think they, they made the playoffs in neither one of those years. Jerry Burns left, and, and as with him did Herschel Walker. It was just, again, when teams act out of desperation, it's almost never just one thing. And, and, and usually you can never just buy that one thing. You have to draft and develop that one thing. And, and the Vikings refused to in 89. They refused to in 2018. And, and you're sort of left with this... You know, question of did the window close when in reality, like we should have been evaluating whether the window was open in the beginning. And from this perspective, I actually, in a way, and I'm not saying I feel bad for Kirk Cousins because if he is having a tough day, he can just buy another helicopter or something. But like, Kirk Cousins was sort of unduly made the savior guy. He was presented as, oh, well, this is the guy that's better than Case, and there's no question he's better than Case Keenum. And I don't think there's any even comparison in terms of talent. But from the season that Case Keenum had, 2017 was a very good quarterback season. He was in PFF's top 10 quarterbacks that year. It's, it's, you're not predicting for the next year. You're only telling us what happened. And what happened was he was very, very good in 2017 at total random. But you brought in Kirk Cousins, who is 
barely cracked the top 10 PFF grades for his career, maybe once, and you're saying, oh, well, he's going to be better than Keenum. Well, he's more talented than Keenum, but asking him to be actually better than Keenum was in his random pop-up season was a big ask, and I, I guess it shouldn't have been super shocking to anyone that it didn't happen. You paid for Kirk Cousins... And he was exactly Kirk Cousins, and that's not really his fault, even though people like me consistently will say, hey, they paid you this much, you have to do X, Y, and Z, but that's not really who he is. So there's a scenario, there's a world and a team where you can have Kirk Cousins win the Super Bowl because he's a talented enough quarterback. That world is not 2018 Minnesota Vikings offense. It's just not good enough. Well, there's just there's universes where it happens. It's just the problem is is we put way too much. We thought that it was way more, right? We thought it was yeah. way more likely. Yeah. And so, like, if like honestly, if the Vikings were win, when were to win the Super Bowl this year, I'd be surprised. I think I'd be happy for all of the Vikings fans for you know finally getting a, a championship. And I think it can happen. I just don't think it's as likely as the average Viking fan thinks it is. Well, that goes for almost anything, though. I mean, right? Like the actual percentage chance is like two percent. But most teams, it's somewhere around two percent, and then you have a couple that might be around seven percent. Right, and then you have the teams like the New England Patriots for issues of schedule, but also brilliance. They're, you're in the fifteen percent range. Kansas City, New Orleans, because of how they're endowed, you're talking about twelve to thirteen percent, and then yeah, as you said, a group like the Rams and the Chargers in that eight, seven, eight percent. But the Vikings are sort of certainly a step below that. They're probably more likely than the the median team to win the Super Bowl, but that's still like. It's really tough. But this is the thing. This is a point, actually, with New Orleans. Like, you talk about how good New Orleans' offense is. Think about what they've given their quarterback, who's already brilliant and would probably be good anyway. They've given him a Hall of Fame caliber left tackle. They draft a right tackle who turns out to be fantastic. They draft a wide receiver who is probably a little bit better than he actually is because he plays with Drew Brees. But I think he makes Brees as much as Brees makes him. He's the next. uh, Michael Thomas is Chris Carter. Yeah, he's just. Right. He's an unbelievable talent. And then they use him correctly with one of the most brilliant offensive minds I think that's ever been in the NFL in Sean Payton. Alvin Kamara is a dynamic weapon that you can use in every which way. They got Jared Cook in the tape train in the offseason. But but, I mean, I guess my point is like Kirk Cousins, even on that team, has a 10% chance of winning the Super Bowl. It's just that it takes a lot. It -hmm. takes a, a hell of a lot to make the 15th best quarterback a legitimate Super Bowl contender. So when they were doing this calculation, that was the thing that I think that was kind of missed maybe, was how good your offense actually has to be and how much offense is going to mean to your Super Bowl chances and how little defense is going to mean in comparison. Well, and you look at, like, so the Saints is a great example. In that game, Kirk was playing a terrific game. They had the Saints on the ropes. I mean, if Adam Thielen doesn't fumble that ball in the red zone that gets run back by Marshawn Lattimore, they probably have a double-digit lead on the Saints. Yeah, and it's just, and again, it's one of those where, you know, the Vikings are in a position with Cousins where you can't make those errors, right? You cannot have either unlucky bounces or you know physical mistakes. Whereas the Saints had unlucky bounces and physical mistakes the whole game against the Vikings, right? And the Vikings have won against them, and it's over, right? And, it, and it's and, and that's that's what having a brilliant quarterback with a brilliant coach provides you. And, and as we've talked about earlier, Zimmer is a brilliant defensive coach, 
The benefit, though, of having a Sean Payton is that he's going nowhere, and he brings that brilliant, consistent offensive mind with him every single season. And because all it took for New Orleans is to go from having one of the worst defenses in the NFL to an average-ish one to take them from that eight and eight, seven and nine position to the twelve and four, thirteen and three type of team that they are. Whereas the Vikings had to have a brilliant offense, a brilliant defense, and go. You know, basically middling offense to brilliant offense to make the same change, right? And that's like that's just how it's sort of unfair towards offenses in the NFL nowadays. So we are outrageously late for our first break, so we will take that now. And when we return, we will talk a little bit about the future of the NFL. We're also going to get to the Vikings team that probably Vikings fans historically have the most regret about that team not making it as they are sort of in the same position as they were uh, early 90s especially. So, from the PFF offices, our last day here, uh, as soon as the show ends, I'm going to run out that door and we're going to drive 90 miles an hour to the uh, airport so I can fly back and be ready for training camp next freaking week. That's going to happen. So, from the PFF offices in Cincinnati, we... X Games Minneapolis returns to U.S. Bank Stadium August 1st through the 4th, featuring four days of the world's best action sports music and festival experience. Don't miss the greatest action sport athletes on the planet and musical performances from Incubus, POS, the Wu-Tang Clan, and more. Tickets and more information at xgames.com slash tickets. Thank you, Jonathan. We are back here at the Pro Football Focus offices in Cincinnati. We have uh, gotten assistance here on the show from Eric Eager and the PFF personalities previewing the season, talking Minnesota Vikings, and we definitely need to continue to work our way through uh, divisions and your best bets for divisions. We did the, I think, did we get through the entire AFC yesterday? So we could do uh, the NFC as we go along today. I think the AFC South is one we have to still do. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we do it right now then? And then we'll get into sort of some future of the NFL stuff. So AFC South. Now, I am... A little bit higher, I think, than some people on the Houston Texans because of one simple reason. His name is Deshaun Watson. Mm-hmm. I, I, Since Clemson, it's, it shouldn't be a hot take to be like, I was really high on Deshaun Watson. Like It's not my fault that he dropped stupidly in the draft. I mean, he should have been one of the top picks, if not the top pick, in that draft. But he dropped a little bit, and since he's been with Houston, he's been a franchise changer for a team that was just sort of floundering at the quarterback position. Anytime you trade for Brock Osweiler, who I don't even think has a job right now, then you are floundering at the quarterback position, and he has taken them to the next level. And uh, DeAndre Hopkins, I mean, that, like they have, they have some shortcomings, but I think that they're one of those teams that could win the division and be very dangerous in the playoffs, and if a couple things go right, go to the Super Bowl. I mean, anytime you have a quarterback like Deshaun Watson, you really you always have a shot because he's you know it, it sounds stupid to say he's a winner, but I think when once you've reached a certain amount of efficacy at the quarterback position, being a winner matters, right? And and Watson certainly has that going for him. And then the other thing that he has going for him, which you know we've quantified here at PFF, is probably the most valuable non-quarterback in the entire league, which is DeAndre Hopkins. So uh, I remember, I think this is coming out in Peter King's, uh, you know, uh, column on Monday. But you know, the, one of the things we showed him with with Hopkins versus like Julio Jones, for example, is Hopkins. 
catches more catchable, inaccurate passes, hmm. right? And so when you think about Watson his first few years, like he wasn't as accurate necessarily as Hopkins' is, you know, st- statistics would suggest, but Hopkins just bails him out a lot, right? So what does that mean? That means if Watson gets better, these passes to, to Hopkins will include more yards after the catch. They'll include more, you know, just expected points, all that kind of stuff. And one guy that I really like for that team that I think is underrated is Kiki Kuti, right? So Will Fuller is a touchdown maker, deep threat. Hopkins is an everything sort of Randy Moss type of wide receiver. Kiki Kuti is that sort of underneath guy. When he played like a full game last year, he generated more targets than Hopkins at times. And so for me, I think like that offense has a lot of potential. The, the interesting thing is what do they do? Um, you know, J.J. Watts, another year older. He's certainly good, but Jadavian Clowney is on the, the franchise take. There are a lot of question marks on that side of the ball, but they're a solid team. To me, though, the class of the division is and will be for quite some time the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, I, don't, I do not disagree. I, I'm trying to go a little bit of hot takey to talk about Houston because I am so high on Deshaun Watson, who, by the way, I'm not sure that we even realize, unless you owned him in fantasy, how good his stats were yeah, last year, yep. Deshaun Watson. I mean, 103 quarterback rating, and he added 550 yards on the ground and five more touchdowns rushing. Well, that that <laughs> that's playing, remarkable, and he played behind the worst offensive line. I mean, the Vikings fans give their offensive line a lot of flack, but the offensive line for the Houston Texans was the worst in football a season ago, and, and they, you know, were still, you know, Watson either escapability design he does designed runs as well. They don't have a really good running game. Lamar Miller's pretty huff, and, I, and the the thing about it is he just overcomes a lot of that stuff so he is he is in every sense of the word a guy that can really elevate uh an offense well i'm gonna save uh super bowl potential picks for hot routes because that's my final hot route for you today so don't mention that but i know that you and i are both very high on the indianapolis colts in part because with frank reich we see the full potential of andrew luck and then they filled out the rest of that roster and offensive line as we know so well on the show and in minnesota matters a lot and they're about as good as it gets but so we know those two teams are going to be battling for this division the the thing about the other two teams is i'm just not sure what you have here i mean tennessee is the ultimate mediocre team that i would forget was in the league if you said name all 32 i'd get to 31 and go who did i forget oh tennessee that's right and jacksonville i don't buy into Doug Marone. It's really hard to believe that Nick Foles in a bad situation is going to be just as good as he was in a amazing situation. So I, I feel like the uh, the direction of this division is probably easier to project than a lot of the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. This division, so Tennessee has quietly finished 9-7 and seven the last three seasons. Um, you know, he, nine and seven is the quietest yeah, record you can have. Exactly, and you know it, it's actually strange though. They almost made the the playoffs with Blaine Gabbert starting multiple games, um, but ultimately, like you know, I like what Vrabel does in terms of his aggressiveness. He goes for it on fourth down most more than the average coach. Their offensive play caller in Matt Lafleur is gone, which he was bad. They could probably only get better there. Marcus Mariota's dealt with a lot of injuries. He has some potential, but I think ultimately he might be a pretty big disappointment as the number two overall pick. Tennessee is one of those teams that's interesting. We've already printed that we like their under. You're talking about eight, eight and a half wins this season. But the interesting thing is, is I think they're a team where if you're looking for best bets, 
that them winning the division title is something like plus 600, plus 500. I think that they are better than that. I think this division is far more wide open than the betting markets, which say basically it's Indianapolis is even money and the rest of the teams have no shot. I think that 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 it's a little bit you know sort of more distributed than that. And Tennessee could be a team that if they catch a couple breaks, if Mariota plays uh, above and beyond his talent, they have a lot of players like Corey Davis, uh, you know, Taiwan, like all those types of players. Delaney Walker can actually make for a good offense if they get out of their own way. So best bet is. I think Tennessee to win the division at plus six hundred, meaning that if you bet a dollar, you get six if they win the division. <laughs> that that's a pretty nice long shot. I mean, that that's bold. When we were doing earlier this offseason, bold takes. If you're the person who has the take that Tennessee is going to win that division, that would be extremely bold. Yep. I just can't see it. I mean, not unless you're telling me Deshaun Watson and Andrew Luck get hurt, which yes. has happened. Well, and but you know, and, and yeah, you're implicitly betting against. I think. We like Indianapolis. There's a YouTube video of uh, my colleague and I, George Shahuri, talking about we like Indianapolis to be the sort of the next Patriots. But at the same time, we've always seen teams that sort of go from being bad to being good have that second year where they sort of don't necessarily meet expectations. That could be the Colts this year. And if that's the case, it's going to open the division up for some of these other teams. And I think Houston, you know, with the issues with their general manager and their defense, Jacksonville, as you said, with Foles and a defense is sort of losing some of its players. Um, I think Tennessee could be a team. Uh, they're more likely to win the division than the, than the betting market suggests. All right. So let's talk for a couple minutes here before we hit another break because we ran super long in the first one, uh, just about 2019 and trends we could see. Because last year, I uh, effectively predicted, and my predictions usually come wrong, that uh, RPOs wouldn't be that big of a thing. Everyone was talking about them all off season. Yep. There were 600 articles about how RPOs were the new trend, and I just wasn't buying it. The Defenses know about RPOs, and just because it worked for the Philadelphia Eagles did not mean everyone was going to all of a sudden put those in. Defenses know, for the most part, how to slow them down, and offenses had already been using them. They just worked for Nick Foles. He used them a lot. Your friend Chris Collinsworth talked about them a lot on broadcast, so all of a sudden it became the big thing, right? Um, But this year, I don't know if I have one. I don't know if I have what the offensive... Uh, innovation for this year prediction is going to be that what's going to be new i think the really the big question is does the offensive trend of record setting and crazy numbers of yards and great quarterback play does it continue or does it slow down i think is the hardest question to answer well i think if people go back and look at what happened in the league a season ago they saw that first down pass rates were astronomical in the first like two-thirds to three-fourths of the year like somewhere like 54, 55%. And those went away a little bit in the second half. I think the league closed something at like 52, 53% of first first down passes were pass plays for passes. And so the question then is, okay, league scoring went down in December and the end of November as a result. So if, if, if the teams are going back and saying, okay, we want to increase scoring, the simplest thing to do is just to pass more on first down. And so I think... You know, we saw some abatement in this idea of like record pace scoring. It was literally after that 105 point game between the Rams <laughs> and the Chiefs on Monday Night Football that we started to, started to see a dip. And some of that could be attributed to like 
the refs calling more holding penalties, all that kind of stuff. But really, it was teams got a little bit more conservative on early downs. I think one of the trends this year will be that teams are less conservative on early downs. We're going to see fewer run plays on first and second down. And just because of the way that football is constructed, that will mean more scoring. So, I, I you know, the other thing that people talked about, we saw, you know, Kirk Cousins talk about this himself, is teams realizing that play action isn't really a quarterback trait. So if you have a bad quarterback, play action is great. And, and and teams running more play action, more in like the thirty to forty percent of their dropbacks range, and then seeing the offensive benefits that are from that. Um, defensively, I think we're going to see teams playing a lot more, even more five and six defensive backs, using safeties as sort of chess pieces, sort of following what the the Los Angeles Chargers did against the Ravens in the first round of the playoffs last year, taking linebackers out of the game, putting safeties in, uh, allowing teams to run on them a little bit. Because knowing that you know, even if you give up five yards per run play, it's way better than giving up seven yards per pass play. I think what you're going to see is defenses figure out play action much better than they ever have. That maybe we don't quite see the Vikings linebackers, Eric Hendricks and Anthony Barr, just drop straight back regardless of whether it's a fake handoff or not. I think, though, that whatever schematically is usually done will be tweaked by defensive coordinators around the league. Mm -hmm. That everyone in the world has heard this stat about how much better certain quarterbacks get with play action. Kirk Cousins has talked about how uh, the execution from player to player impacts play action, but regardless of that, there has to be something with him. And I think it's twofold. I think he's very good with the football. He's extremely detailed. I mean, this is Kirk Cousins' number one trait about him as a person on the field is just very detailed about everything. So when he runs a play action, he's doing it exactly right with the football, and I think that makes it harder for linebackers and reading their keys and so forth. But the other thing is that it often moves him into space where he has time to set and execute a throw, where it's schemed up, where it needs to be at a certain timing and a certain number of steps, and to to that end, that's where he's at his best, when you can draw it up for him and he can just execute it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, if you're going to play the Vikings, if you're the Atlanta Falcons and you're prepping for Vikings week one, if you're looking back at everything that Gary Kubiak has drawn up and you're looking at Shanahan trends and things like that, and you're saying, you know what? We don't need to stop all these, but if we could get a pick six out of one of them, if we could just guess right on these play actions, and last year it happened a couple times. Uh, The Arizona Cardinals, for example, guessed right on one of those play action boots and were right in his face, and he threw a pick because of it. And my guess is that teams are going to know, okay, you're running these zones to the outsides, and every once in a while, he's going to swing back right to where we know he's going to be, yeah. and we're going to blitz off that side. Because if you blitz off that side on on those play action boots, I mean, you're just right there in front of the quarterback. And well, and you and you, I think, perfectly summarized what defense is in the current NFL. If you want to play, if you want to win defensively, every down of the game, like little itty bitty every single down, you're going to fail in the NFL because offense are so such a big advantage to offense. But what you can do is you can lose, lose, win big. Lose, lose, win big. And I think that that's how you have to play defense now. The defenses now that are successful are not holding teams to three points. Right? This isn't 1989. Right. The defenses that are successful now are getting turnovers and sacks and sack fumbles and things that are not stable, things that are difficult to predict but are backbreaking. Right? We saw that, you know, we talked about that Saints game again. The Saints defense was not good on a play for play basis against the Vikings. But what did they do? They made one fumble on Kirk 
They picked it up and scored, you know, brought it almost all the way back. And they intercepted when Kirk and Stephon Diggs made a mistake and they housed it for a touchdown. That's good defense in the NFL now. It's a little offensive to our sensibilities, but it's the way it is. Okay, we need to take a break here. I want to ask you this question, and we'll also continue to look at different divisions here, and we'll run through the NFC. But I want to ask you the question of which one of the previous Vikings teams that did not make it, and it wasn't 09 or 98, those are the obvious ones, did the Vikings ever have another team that should have gone all the way and didn't? We will answer. Time for the Score North download here. Jonathan here with this download brought to you by MyPillow. NFL Total Access last night was rating their top five cornerbacks in the league, and the Vikings star corner Xavier Rhodes ranked fifth with them saying he doesn't have the biggest, most wowing stat, but he's always consistently around the ball. He's a big corner that's always disrupting things. Put him on any wide receiver on a team, and he's going to disrupt them and keep them quiet. Your thoughts? Five too low, too high? Let us know at Score North on Twitter. That's at SKOR North on Twitter. That's your Score North download. Now back to Purple Daily. Five is pretty generous for Xavier Rhodes, wouldn't you say, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know Rhodes has been, um, you know, a good player. He's not. He's never been a guy that PFF has. Uh, well, twenty fourteen, he was a guy we really liked, uh, and I don't think Vikings fans have caught up to that truth yet. And then since then, he's been a player that we've been, you know, ne- more negative on than the average Vikings fan. And I think a lot of it is due to the fact that we negatively grade penalties right and so yep. uh, when he gets an illegal contact penalty five yards automatic first down i don't think the average fan really realizes that that's pretty much like giving up a 15 yard completion on third down and so it doesn't really show up in his statistics but shows up in his grade and that's why folks you know you know don't necessarily like uh you know our, our treatment of him the other part of it too is cornerbacks are just tricky and you have to yep. contextualize cornerback grades and I was talking to your colleague who was on the other day with us, Sam Monson, about how cornerbacks who look at your grades on PFF will sometimes contact Mr. Monson to talk about how they've been graded for a particular week. And one of the things that is just an unsolvable problem, and you can contextualize it yourself, is who they faced. So Julio Jones is not like facing Mohamed Sanu. There's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. And also... The fact that when a quarterback looks in that direction, sees a guy covered and does not throw it there, that you're not grading the throws that didn't happen. So with Xavier Rhodes, you look how often he's targeted compared to Trey Wayans, it kind of tells you what the other team thinks. The other team thinks that throwing at Xavier Rhodes, even if their best receiver is over there, might not be the best idea, as opposed to throwing at Trey Wayans, which generally is maybe a better idea, uh, especially since Xavier is very good at playing the ball. Like He does commit the penalties a lot, but he also plays the ball, and Trey Wayans has not been as good at that throughout his career. So this is, to me, there's two ways you can look at uh, PFF grades, is you can look at them in one way and be like, oh, this one, I don't agree with it, it's BS. Or we can ask, okay, so what went into this? And and what does it really tell us about Xavier Rhodes? Does it tell us that Xavier Rhodes is really the 30th best corner? Or does it tell us, hey, you know, if he reduced his penalties by like four this year, just four, he would have gotten a much better grade than he did before. And, and it tells us per snap, that he's really not targeted that much, which means that opposing quarterbacks are not picking on him. They're trying to pick on other areas of the Vikings' defense, and uh, considering that he's out on an island playing by himself, 
against the best receivers, that's a big advantage also for the Vikings defense. So even if he's graded just okay, the fact that he can even do that and be yep. that island guy is a big advantage for everyone else on that defense because you can roll coverage the other way. You could bring a safety down and play like the sky coverage. There, there's your extreme football. football. Your What is it? Cover three sky. It's when you bring down cover three and you bring down your strong safety. Oh, yeah. You ready for football? I mean, dude, camp so, is coming. Dude, this, Drop dude, the cover three sky. The cover three sky. It's Man. like the interaction, like the Chicago, like it's our, our two like uh, interests. You know, football, of course, and then we both like the WNBA, the Chicago sky. Uh, Chicago sky, diamond to shields. Man. Yeah. She's a good player. But I, I, I think it's you bring up a ton of reasons why I still, and the data suggests the coverage is more important than pass rush, all things considered, because of you don't even think of those things, right? You don't think of the value that Xavier Rhodes has by making a quarterback go to a second read. We know the quarterbacks significantly go down. We charted this when they go from their first read to their second. So you're absolutely right, and that's why it's important to take our grades and what we've done with them is take a, make it into a wins above replacement value. But then it's also important to to sort of go and you know, make sure that you're contextualizing what you're seeing, adjust for opponent. We do that in a lot of our predictive models um, because, yeah, not every player, you know, there was this one year where Terrence Newman graded higher than Xavier Rose was right. like, well, Terrence Newman had easier time of it. Uh, and then we certainly appreciate and understand that and know that that's a limitation uh, in the, in the grading you know, system that you guys all get to see, uh, you know, if you have a, a premium subscription or, or you just read our articles. Speaking of which, you have a promo code. I do, yeah. If anyone wants to sign up for Pro Football Focus for this year, they can use this particular promo code. So why don't you give your promo code? This yeah. is the benefit of me coming here. I flew all the way here, everyone, to get you this promo code right. for Pro Football Focus. Yeah, so if you want, you know, so we have two two uh, subscriptions. One is Edge, one is Elite. One, the Edge is uh, a little bit less expensive, but you get fewer things. With Elite, you get access to all of our uh, fantasy content, all of our gambling content, uh, behind the paywall, there are articles, premium stats, all that. And if you use the promo code SCORE, so S-K-O-R, you will get 25% off of that for whatever denomination you want, a monthly subscription, a yearly subscription. So go ahead and go to pff.com and uh, use that promo code uh, if you want to uh, strike while the iron's hot here. S-K-O-R, the promo code at Pro Football Focus's website, and 25% off for the, uh, not the elite, the other one is, I mean, that's like... Cutting a big chunk off of the price, you're basically paying. Yeah, hardly the, elite elite is elite is two hundred dollars. So you're talking about you know basically. What's the other one? Uh, Edge, which is Edge gets you fewer things. That that's I believe twenty to thirty dollars per year. Okay, I mean take twenty percent off that. You're you're paying for a hamburger at that point. So anyway, all right. When we return, it's ninety degrees in Minneapolis. It's ninety two in Cincinnati. That means the routes that we will run are going to be hot, blazing hot, blazing hot. And one of them, I'll tease, includes. Your Super Bowl prediction, Eric. You've run all the numbers, one million simulations, so you know who's going to win the Super Bowl. You will tell us when we return. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. This holiday season... 
Peloton's got a gift for you. Right now, get up to $200 off accessories with the purchase of a Peloton Shred. Accessories like non-slip grip resistance bands, a heart rate monitor, yoga blocks, and more. Take your workout to the next level with Peloton, motivation that moves you. Hurry, this limited time offer ends December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access memberships separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.